Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 5, and y'all, as a disclaimer, I gotta warn you that this will be an extremely tough case to hear. It involves a brutal murder of a minor, so I will do my best to spare you the gory, horrifying details But to truly tell this story, I'm going to have to discuss at least some of the grisly information. So with that being said up front, in April of 1998, the body of a 13-year-old girl was found on the campus of Lindenwood University, a private institution in St. Charles, Missouri, which is about 30 minutes outside of St. Louis. After an extensive search involving bloodhounds, it was ultimately a tip from a fellow Lindenwood student that would help bring her killer to justice. This episode is titled, The Bedsheet That Broke the Case, The Murder of Tiffany Saboran. So without further ado, let's get started. On the night of April 25, 1998, in St. Charles, Missouri, 13-year-old Tiffany Saboran was babysitting her two younger brothers, Derek and Jacob, at her mom's boyfriend's apartment. At some point during the night, around 10 p.m. or so, she snuck outside to smoke a cigarette. Now, you might be thinking, 13 is a little young to be smoking a cigarette, but honestly, (laughs) I remember me at 13, and not to air out my dirty laundry too much, but (laughs) I had definitely tried smoking a cigarette by that time. Anyway, while she was out there, a 21-year-old college student by the name of Jason Shipman was walking down the street. Though the two were complete strangers and did not know each other at all, Shipman approached Tiffany and struck up a conversation with her by asking what time it was. The two began talking, and Tiffany ended up offering Shipman a juice box. Eventually, Shipman persuaded Tiffany to leave her two brothers at home, who were only 8 and 11 years old, and walk back with him to his dorm room at Lindenwood University. Tiffany reluctantly obliged, and the two walked toward campus, which is about a half a mile away from the apartment. 
When they arrived at Shipman's room, the two of them talked and listened to music for a while until Tiffany told him she needed to go. She needed to get back home because her mom would be there soon. So Shipman said okay and offered to walk her back. When Tiffany and Shipman reached a footpath near the water tower on campus, they stopped to smoke a quick cigarette before continuing the rest of the way. However, at this point, Shipman testified he knew right then and there that he was going to kill her. And well, the sick son of a bitch did just that. According to an Associated Press article that was published in the Southeast Missourian, Shipman stood behind Tiffany and slashed her throat with a buck knife. He then forced her to take off her clothes before he sexually assaulted her and stabbed her another time in the back of her neck, which actually paralyzed her. Shipman testified in court, quote, I became angry. In my rage, I stabbed her. That is when she died, end quote. But Tiffany had enough life left in her after he stabbed her that second time to plead with Shipman and ask him to take her to the hospital because she literally could not feel her legs. But Shipman ignored her pleas like the monster he is because what he did next is truly, truly horrifying. And this is the part that's going to be extremely difficult to hear. But y'all, he decapitated her right there in that remote area on campus and then burned her genitals in an attempt to cover up evidence of his crime. He then walked to his dorm room, grabbed a bed sheet off of his own bed, and used that sheet to carry her head from one side of campus to the other before eventually dumping it in a porta potty near the soccer fields. When he was done, he tossed the sheet into a nearby pond on campus, located about a quarter of a mile away from where he had left Tiffany's body, and then he threw rocks on top of the sheet in the pond to help it sink. And the rest of her body? Well, he just left it there for somebody else to find, which is exactly what happened. The next morning, at around 6.30 a.m., another college student was on his way to work at a local pizza hut when he saw Tiffany's body lying on the ground. At first, though, the student thought it was a mannequin or a prank or even some sort of sick joke. But as he inched closer and closer, he realized it was a very real human body, and he alerted campus security right away. Within a few hours, the campus of Lindenwood University was swarming with over 40 detectives who quickly began processing the scene and investigating the crime. As law enforcement searched across campus, it didn't take them long to find Tiffany's severed head in that portable toilet, which was located about a half a mile from where her body was discovered. Clearly, detectives needed to find out exactly who the victim was because at this point, they had no idea she was Tiffany Saboran or that she was only 13 years old. According to an article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch by Cindy Billhartz, investigators initially thought she was in her late teens or early 20s. Seriously, the whole thing just makes me completely and utterly sick. Anyway, detectives did what they had to do in effort to identify the victim. They took a photo of Tiffany's head, and they began showing it to students in the cafeteria as they walked in for lunch. And yes, I know what you're thinking, so let me address that. According to the reporting of Ashley Higginbotham for the Linden Link, Lindenwood's campus newspaper, police captain Patrick McCarrick said, quote, It was a cleaned up picture. It didn't show that her head was cut off or anything like that. But we had to know who that girl was, end quote. However, McCarrick said, 
Not one of the students recognized her, so they then contemplated releasing the photo to the media. But ultimately, they didn't have to do that because a very worried mother had contacted police by nightfall on April 26th to report Tiffany missing. Dawn Saboran, Tiffany's mom, gave a description of her daughter that matched the body they had found on campus. Now that investigators were able to identify the victim, they needed to find her killer. They didn't know it at the time, but Shipman had went MIA from campus and classes, and he was no longer staying in the dorms, even though he did leave his stuff there, which is an important piece of information that I'll definitely circle back around to. So for law enforcement, time was ticking and pressure was mounting from the moment her body was discovered on campus. You see, Parents Weekend was in full swing that April weekend in 1998, so Lindenwood University had a lot more visitors than usual, which means there was a whole lot more potential suspects as well. Plus, finals were approaching, so they needed to try and interview as many students as possible before they packed up and left the city or even the state for summer break. Over the next several days, law enforcement investigated a total of about 400 leads and interviewed at least 200 people, and they had an overwhelming hunch that her killer was connected to the university somehow. McCarrick told the Linden Link, quote, We were convinced that the university had some relationship to the crime, but you can't say to all the students, this is not television. You can't leave town until you're done with this, end quote. Through their interviews with students on campus, police were able to come up with a description of a suspect. More than one person on campus saw a man fitting the description of a white male in his late 20s or early 30s, who stood about 5 feet 10 inches to 6 feet tall, weighing about 160 to 170 pounds, and he was wearing a plaid black, blue, and white long-sleeved flannel shirt, dark pants, and a light-colored ball cap that was turned backward. Those who described the man said they saw him at various places on campus, like walking around, between 4 and 5 a.m. But after a week, law enforcement hadn't yet made any arrests, and students at Lindenwood, as well as the greater community, were frightened. And, I mean, I definitely would be too. Students began walking in pairs around campus, to and from class, and one student even said she asked her boyfriend to take her to class and pick her up because she was incredibly scared and just wanted that extra layer of protection and security. Plus, at the time, there wasn't a lot of media coverage, so the public was left to speculate and draw their own conclusions of what might have happened to Tiffany and who could have possibly done it. Apparently, in 1998, the university president prohibited media from coming onto campus, so maintenance would block the entrances and they would tell TV crews to turn around and drive off if they tried to come onto campus. McCarrick explained to Linden Link reporter Ashley Higginbotham that they ultimately decided to bring in bloodhounds from out of state to help investigators search for clues. So, canine Chester from Michigan and canine Samantha from Indiana came to the rescue, literally. McCarrick said he didn't have a lot of experience at the time with using these type of trained dogs, so he wondered if they would be able to pick up any scent or clues because it had been raining in Missouri nonstop. He said, quote, It had rained hard every day. I thought maybe that would interfere with the way the dogs work, but I found out that was not a problem. End quote. Chester and Samantha were first exposed to Tiffany's scent from some of her gym clothes that police had retrieved from her school locker. Chester went first and led his handler from the apartment where Tiffany was babysitting her brothers all the way to the pond where Shipman had tossed that bedsheet. 
at the pond, Chester keyed in on a specific corner. Police then took Samantha out on a boat in the pond, and when they reached the corner where Chester had hit on, McCarrick said Samantha went crazy and just wanted to jump in. So investigators knew that specific spot in that pond was where they needed to search. They then brought in trained police divers who located the bedsheet that Shipman had tossed into the pond in the exact spot where the dogs had alerted them to. McCarrick said, quote, They smelled that girl's scent almost immediately on that sheet from a mile away, over a hill, a week later, under five feet of water, and it had rained every day, end quote. But they still had some police work to do to figure out exactly how this sheet was connected to Tiffany's murder. Remember, at the time, they had no idea the sheet belonged to Shipman, and he wasn't on their radar. Yet. But he would be very soon. You see, investigators cleaned up the sheet as best they could, and they decided to release a photo of it to the public. According to the Linden Link, the photo aired on the 5 p.m. news broadcast across the St. Louis area, and by 5.30 p.m., they had a call that would break the case wide open. Jason Richter lived in room 120 of Cobbs Hall. He was Jason Shipman's roommate, although the two weren't really friends and did not hang out together. But that evening, when the news aired, Jason Richter's girlfriend called him and told him to turn on the TV because they were going to show some evidence from the murder case. Richter had been alone in his room for over a week, though, because remember, Shipman had basically checked out after Tiffany's body was found. But also remember... Shipman didn't take his belongings with him. Anyway, as Richter was talking to his girlfriend on the phone and they showed the picture of the sheet, Richter glanced over at his roommate's bed and realized his sheets looked an awful lot like the one on the news. Richter said, quote, I was like, that's a weird looking sheet. Most of us go and buy the tan striped sheets or a straight color. Well, this was like tan with a dark brown circle. And at the time, we didn't know it was the wing of a dove or a bird going through it. End quote. So at first, Richter was dumbfounded and in denial. Could his roommate really be the potential killer? So he asked his girlfriend over the phone to describe what the sheet on TV looked like to her. Was she seeing what he was seeing? Yes. Yes, she was. To be sure, though, Richter then called his dad, who was also watching the news broadcast, and he asked his dad the same thing. Tell me what the sheet looks like to you, Richter asked him. And again, same thing. They were all seeing the exact same sheet. The flat sheet was on TV, and the fitted sheet that matched it was in Richter's room on his roommate's bed. The Associated Press reported officially that it was a tan sheet with white seagulls cutting through large brown circles. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.
Richter and his dad then alerted authorities and soon his dorm room was bombarded by police who brought in a forensic team that dusted for fingerprints. Richter explained, quote, that's when it hit me. This is my roommate. This is actually happening, end quote. Of course, investigators began extensively searching for Jason Shipman, who matched the description of the man witnesses saw walking around campus in the early morning hours of April 26th. It didn't take long before they were led to a motel in Bridgeton, Missouri, about 8 to 10 miles away from the Lindenwood campus. They located Shipman at the motel on May 3rd, 1998, and took him in for questioning around 10 p.m. that night. Although Shipman waived his Miranda rights, he initially denied knowing Tiffany or seeing her or really having anything to do with her murder. He also denied that the bedsheet belonged to him. Captain McCarrick said, quote, He denied knowing anything about it at first. Then we got to the station and he blamed it on Billy Joe Logsdon, end quote. At the time, Logsdon was a 15-year-old kid and a friend or acquaintance, maybe, of Shipman's. The prosecuting attorney in the case, Jack Bannis, described Logsdon as having a low IQ and manic depressive behavior. So that kind of tells you a little bit more about who exactly Shipman was blaming this murder on. He went on to tell authorities that he was at a motel on the night of the murder and he was at the motel with Logsdon. But he said Logsdon was the one who actually killed Tiffany while Shipman simply acted as a lookout. To be honest, police didn't really know what to make of Shipman's story, but they had to follow up on it regardless of how odd or implausible it seemed. So next, they brought in 15-year-old Logsdon for questioning, and he too waived his Miranda rights, and y'all, he proceeded to tell police that, yes, he killed Tiffany. Although his story about the events leading up to the murder, as well as details from the crime scene, were not matching up with what police knew to be true so far. So they continued investigating to get to the truth, but because they basically had a confession and then somebody corroborating that confession, they had to arrest both Shipman and Logsdon at the time, and they were both held without bond. In May of 1998, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that police charged both Shipman and Logsdon with Tiffany's murder. In addition, though, Shipman was charged with statutory rape and armed criminal action. I'm not really sure how they could charge Shipman with that, like already when his story was not adding up at the time. But anyway, that's what sources say. Anyway, Shipman pleaded not guilty and Logsdon, since he pleaded guilty, well, they had to decide whether they were going to charge him as a juvenile or an adult. By July 1998, a judge ordered Logsdon to stand trial as an adult, and he faced a maximum sentence of life without parole. He would not, however, receive the death penalty because he was only 15 at the time of the murder or of him allegedly committing the murder. Regardless, the judge ruled that Logsdon should not remain in the juvenile system because of the seriousness of the crime and because of his maturity level. Plus, the judge ruled that the juvenile facilities could not necessarily meet Logsdon's treatment requirements. Apparently, a psychologist evaluated Logsdon and said he would need psychological treatment for at least five to six years because of his abusive childhood. 
Still, they wanted to certify him as an adult. If not, he could not be held beyond his 21st birthday if he really did this crime, and he could possibly be released in as little as two years when he turned 18. So again, remember, at the time, even though investigators had a hunch that Logsdon had nothing to do with the murder, or at the very least, they didn't believe he was truly the one who raped and killed Tiffany, their hands were tied. I mean, Shipman was telling them one thing, saying he was simply the lookout and pleading not guilty, while Logsdon had basically confessed. And Don Saborin, Tiffany's mother, just wanted justice to be served no matter who it was. She supported Logsdon being certified and tried in adult court. She said, quote, It's unfortunate he had a bad childhood, but it still doesn't bring my daughter back. If he wasn't certified, as an adult, then he wouldn't have a chance to get the punishment he deserves. End quote. But investigators continued working the case as Logsdon's and Shipman's trials drew near. Ultimately, they came to the conclusion that Shipman acted alone and Logsdon was just like a scapegoat or somebody he could blame it on. McCarrick said, quote, Logsdon was in jail for about a year, but we were able to alibi him. He had nothing to do with it, end quote. Forensic evidence, including DNA taken from cigarette butts found at the crime scene, linked only Shipman to the murder, not Logsdon. Plus, Shipman's fingerprints were the only ones police lifted from the porta potty where he dumped Tiffany's head. They did not find Logsdon's fingerprints or DNA anywhere. Also, Logsdon would go on to tell investigators many different versions of the story of what happened, and they were able to discount every single one of them. So it was obviously looking more and more like Shipman was the sole killer, but investigators needed to get him to admit that fact. Finally, in September of 1999, Shipman changed his plea from not guilty to guilty so he could avoid a potential death sentence from a jury. He was offered a plea deal, but as part of that plea deal, he had to tell the absolute truth about exactly what happened to Tiffany Saborin on the night of April 25th and into the next morning of April 26th, 1998. He agreed to do so, and he explained to them the events that I described to you at the beginning of this episode. He told them he did act alone and that Logsdon had nothing to do with it, that he had originally lied when he first said that. On the day that Shipman finally confessed, Logsdon, who was then 17, went free and was released into the custody of an aunt in Kentucky. But something else that surfaced during Shipman's confession was the fact that he set out that night looking for someone to kill. He told investigators that he walked around on campus for a bit, but when he didn't find an opportunity or a victim, he began walking off campus in the direction of those apartments where he eventually stumbled upon Tiffany standing outside. McCarrick described his thoughts about Shipman to the Linden Link. He said, quote, he's a classic organized killer. He probably would have become a serial killer had we not caught him. It clearly was a sexually motivated crime. Saying he didn't care who the victim was is nonsense. End quote. Through their investigation, police discovered that Shipman had a history of petty crime. And one time, he had been evicted from a mobile home, like a mobile home trailer park, where he was staying with his mom and sister. But management kicked him out because he was caught peeping in a young girl's window. Also, Shipman had a child with a former girlfriend of his, and that former girlfriend had filed protection orders against him in July and December of 1997. Shipman's ex-girlfriend was documented in the orders of protection as saying, quote, I am afraid of him because he beat up his little sister. No telling what he might do to me or anybody else, end quote. 
She also claimed in the protection orders that he had harassed her multiple times. Anyway, by the end of Shipman's official confession, he was handed three life sentences plus 150 years in prison with no possible parole. He is currently serving that sentence at the Southeast Correctional Center in Missouri. Tiffany Jaylene Saboran was born on October 7, 1984. At the time of her death, she was a 7th grader at Wentzville Middle School. She had a big family, including her mother, Don Saboran, and two half-brothers, Derek and Jacob. Tiffany also had two half-sisters and two other half-brothers through her father, Rodney E. Whitrock Sr. Her family recalled how truly kind and wonderful she was. Her stepmother, Kathleen Higgins, said she always remembered Tiffany smiling and happy. She said Tiffany was never mean or angry. Kathleen said, quote, she had the cutest little laugh and the prettiest smile and was a beautiful girl. You could tell she had this charisma about her, end quote. And although Tiffany's favorite subject in school was math, she lived to play softball. Her stepmother, Kathleen, told the Linden Link that she would drive from Troy, Missouri to Winsville, Missouri, where Tiffany lived, and she would do that twice a week to pick Tiffany up for softball practice. Kathleen said, quote, she would always call and say, you're going to pick me up, right? You're not going to miss me, right? That was her way to get away, end quote. Tiffany's friends from school also recalled how kind-hearted and fun she was. One of her best friends, Donna Craig, remembered how the two of them would just have a lot of fun times after school. Donna said, quote, We used to always walk home from school, and Tiffany was the loudest one. We would walk to McDonald's after school singing stupid songs, like Hoochie Mama from the movie Friday, so definitely songs we weren't allowed to sing, end quote. To this day, Tiffany's memory lives on. On the 20th anniversary of her death in April of 2018, over 50 people gathered at Frontier Park in St. Charles, Missouri for a balloon release in honor of Tiffany. Some of those people in attendance included her mom, Dawn, as well as her half-brother Jacob, her half-sister Brittany, Brittany's two-year-old little boy, Braxton, who would be Tiffany's nephew, as well as Tiffany's best friend from all those years ago, Donna Craig. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 42. As always, be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. You can also reach me by email at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com, like if you wanted to request a case. And you can be sure to keep checking out my TikTok, even though I'm not always great at posting on there, but I do have some additional campus crime stories and I have some in the queue that I'm also working on right now. So in the next couple of weeks, I do plan to post a TikTok. Also, y'all don't forget that my new goal is 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm currently at about 89 or 90, I think the last time I checked. So I only need a few more. So help me get to 100 ratings and reviews. Um, Yeah. So, okay, y'all, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Jari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.